I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Internet Marketing. Hello and welcome to the Internet Marketing Podcast brought to you by Site Visibility. I'm your host, Scott Colnut, and with me today is John Driscoll, CEO of Naked Development. And we're going to be discussing how to build a successful app. Welcome to the podcast, John. Well, uh, thank you so much for having me on here, Scott. No problem. Would you like to take a moment to introduce yourself to our listeners and just describe a little bit more about what you do as a company at Naked Development, and also then your role within the company? Sure. Yeah. Naked Development is uh, essentially an app development company. We like to say an app consultancy. Um, I'm the CEO and, and co-founder of the company. And so I've essentially been, I've spent the last 13 years building applications for large companies, startups, and I've found over time that we really, in our DNA, we really love to build startup technology, you know, essentially companies that are trying to disrupt an industry. And that's kind of become our specialty. And we do that in, um, you know, in, in three facets, you know, design, having a, you know, great UI UX, and then development, you know, that's the coding aspect of building an application. And then uh, the go-to market strategies and then helping to execute those strategies. And that that's kind of the ecosystem we've built here at Naked Development. And we've been extremely fortunate to have, you know, lots of inquiries every month and very fortunate to be uh, able to be selective about who we work with. And uh, so we've been um, doing this for a bit and, uh, you know, have enjoyed some success and, and some failure as well. But uh Happy to talk about both. Are you a hands-on, practical developer-type CEO, or what other responsibilities maybe do you take within the company? Yeah, I would say I'm more of an overseer. I'm not involved in the day-to-day of development, as or or even as as much with design or anything like that. I probably get more involved in the marketing aspect mm-hmm. of the company. I'm a little bit more hands-on when it comes to strategy. And so I have, you know, other consultants in the company that do a great job of, of giving out advice. And we've got far more talented people developing and designing than, than me, even though I've done those things before. I, I'm not really uh, involved in those. So my, my day-to-day is around kind of overseeing 
the leadership and, you know, essentially always refining the system and then managing client relationships mostly. And I think as you were talking in the intro there, you said that this is something you've been a part of for around 13 years. Is that app development you've been involved in all aspects of app development for 13 years? Yeah, I love telling the story. We, uh, you know, March 6, 2008, I always ask people if they know what that day was. It was the first day of the App Store. And I was fortunate <laughs> enough to be watching uh, the, you know, the, the, the screen share from Apple that day. They announced um, that they were going to create this App Store. And people, you know, often don't remember, but for a good year, you know, close to a year that the iPhone was out and the only apps that you could really use were the apps that Apple provided. And so for, you know, a whole year, there wasn't anything to download. And so this was the inception of the App Store and the release of the app community, uh, development community. And I signed up the first day, had no clue, you know, what language we were going to write in or I didn't know anything. But uh, we dove in and me and Jason uh, decided we were going to become app developers. And did that mean and does it mean now that you're you throw yourself in and immerse yourself into the app world? So are you a keen user? Do you find yourself downloading lots of different apps, testing the function functionality features and your kind of mobile phone is always at your side? Or do you try and detach for it for some reason because of that discipline or the addiction that some people experience? No, I, I would say I'm absolutely addicted to doing everything through apps in my life. In fact, oh, interesting. Uh, my coffee maker is app related. Right. Yeah. The old part of the internet of things, you're kind of at one with that. I'm I'm the most extreme person probably on that you could meet. Um, yeah, just about everything, you know, from getting my car washed today to, uh, like I said, making my coffee getting my house cleaned. Everything I do is app related. And it's it's partially because of what I do, but it's partially because I just think it's an easier way to do things. I think mm. in most worlds to manage my life, I would need like a person that does that for me, that manages all that for me. But that person is really my phone. I'm able to do all these things on my phone so easily without having to pick up and call someone or have a long discussion all that friction that we have in our lives, apps have been able to essentially remove that and make things easier. And so um, I truly am, I drink the Kool-Aid uh, very much with the app world. Are you able to put a number on the number of apps that you and Naked Development have built over this last 13 years? Uh, yeah, we, we, we kind of speculate that it's somewhere between three and 400 but I, I, we have not sat down to actually count it out. Yeah. <laughs> and what I'm interested to know, you touched as you were talking that about working with disruptors and maybe finding a niche or narrowing down in that specific area. But I've mm -hmm. also got in front of me the notes of some of the companies that you work, have worked with. So some of the largest corporations in America, Bank of America, American Red Cross, UPS. And I'm sure. really interested to know just personally whether there's a a big difference to you in working with some of the well-known established brands and those corporations or whether it's kind of more interesting or more desirable to work with some of the disruptor types of businesses. Does it make a difference to you as a, I'm, I'm really asking that question through the lens of the people that are building the apps. 
Yeah, I, I think most people in our, you know, w- with what we do, chase the big companies. And we did mm-hmm. in the beginning. But we found in the process of doing that, that they weren't as interesting to work with. I mean, you said it very well, because my interpretation is because they kind of dictate. Um, they've already predetermined. In other words, they don't involve their app development company or their consultancy in the process of making decisions. They've made those decisions, bring them to you and say, please build me this. And and I find that what they end up doing is not as disruptive or interesting as somebody who comes and says, hey, I'm open-minded. I want to involve you in the collaboration of this process. And I'd like to know how I can truly solve this problem. Big companies bring us solutions. Disruptors come with a problem. And I find that that makes all the difference in what we end up doing. So I'm interested in this, that as a starting point and maybe the, the starting point for how people approach you and when they decide to approach you. So Mm -hmm. what I'd assume is that I'd assume that disruptors, there might be some disruptors in the market that are app first companies that perhaps they're building the app and that is their initial native platform from which they launch. Mm-hmm. And I would sus- I would suspect that some of the larger corporations, when they approach you, an app is, exten- is an extension of their existing brand. Let's maybe just take the, the startup example just to start there. When they approach you with their initial ideas, what are the, some of the first steps or processes that you go through to even validate their ideas if you go through that process at all? Yeah, so we had 954 inquiries last year. And we go through a process of vetting the idea first. And I would say, and then eventually vetting the people with the idea. And so they go through a pre-interview before they get to me. And then I have a conversation with them that generally is about 30 minutes to an hour to try to understand where they're at. Are they truly prepared to execute this idea? Is the idea fleshed out? Are they open-minded to collaboration? We kind of go through that process. We Obviously, one of those questions in there is their funding stage. We take people at all stages. Sometimes they're very small amount of funding. You know, they might have $15,000, you know, or something like that. And we have often taken them from that point to raising funds and to going that. So it's our priority is more that the idea and the people are set up for success as opposed to trying to make sure they're, you know, they just have a bunch of money. We've been offered, you know, lots of money and turn that down. It's just really about, is this company or this thing set up to succeed? That that's really what I look for. So I kind of see myself as a curator of startup companies, you know, so that we have successful projects that we can talk about down the road. Um, That's always our goal. And what kind of questions do you ask to help validate these ideas? I, I understand what you're saying. I'm trying to put myself in the position of a kind of an app founder. They're sitting across the table from you and you're kind of throwing questions at them to maybe try and validate their idea, support them, understand the financing aspect. What is it that you're trying to figure out? First, first and foremost, the number one thing is, are they the type of person that can, that has proper expectations of what 
the startup process is going to look like for creating a company. I would say 90% of the time they underestimate how hard it's going to be. That That's the most common thing I find. Um, and then I look for the clarity of the problem and the solution. I try to get their solution down to three words or less. Most mm-hmm. of the time it takes them a paragraph or two to ex- explain it to me. And that's just far too big. We need to get it down to, you know, three words or less. Do they, are they clear on the problem and the, and the solution? If they're not clear on that, that can be really, really hard to work with. And so that's, that's a big part of it. And then do they understand the concept of minimum viable product? Do they understand that you have to build small, you know? And so I, you know, often talk through that with them and ask them, you know, you know, what, what's the first version of this going to look like? Because mm-hmm. our first goal in the beginning is to understand what we can accomplish in three months and also understand what we're shooting for in three years. We have to have those two aiming points clear um, so that we can succeed. And, and if they're trying to do too much in three months, people overestimate what they can do in three months and they underestimate what they can accomplish in three years. So I try to get to see if they're clear on that, among other things. But I would say those are the, those are the main points I look for. Has there any meetings that you remember being in where it was just crystal clear, the vision was clear, you were able to simplify the vision in a short statement, as you said, three words or less just to describe it. And you just came out of the meeting thinking, number one, maybe I, I really wish I came up with that idea. And number two, I can't wait to help this company. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm working with one now that I feel, you know, that way, which is why I got on the board and am part of the, you know, the ownership now, because I felt that they were the right people. They had a simple problem. That's, that's often the thing is it's simple. Are they trying to, are they trying to solve three or four or five problems? That's often too much. And they were, they were just trying to solve a really simple problem. And yeah, I uh, was super excited about it. I thought we had all the parts. And once we, and I also thought we had the demand for the solution. And I'm finding now, you know, a year and a half in, I was absolutely right. That's a really interesting thing about the simplification of either the features, the functionality, or the solutions, really. The apps that I use largely have kind of maybe up to three main features, that, and mm-hmm. those are the apps that I use regularly. So I guess as I talk that through, is it fair to say that uh, maybe a challenge or a misunderstanding from some of the founders that approach you with app ideas is that apps can or should do more than actually is realistic and an app or a successful app helps deliver a couple of key solutions and that's it? Well, you you said it. That's absolutely what's going on. In fact, I think there is an insight that everyone is missing right now, even in the most successful apps on the planet, that once you have so many features that your uh, user base starts to become disinterested. And I think we're seeing that. I think we saw that with Facebook years ago. And I think we're starting to see it with Instagram. I think once an app is trying to do too much that the user gets, there's, you know, this confusion of what does this do? What am I doing? And 
remember the real estate on a phone is pretty small. So the idea that it's supposed to do all these things is ridiculous. It's really interesting because the company that comes to mind as you're talking for me is Facebook when it comes to trying to do too much with one app. I know they have a separate messaging app and I know they have WhatsApp now. Uh, but yeah. just think, thinking about the general Facebook app and the number of features and things that you can do or within the app, uh, you know, I'm thinking about groups or advertising and so on. Um, it's perhaps overcomplicated. And another thing that comes to mind is, which I imagine has been challenging, but someone like Twitter, where more be- recently they've introduced spaces, which intro- adds that mm-hmm. extra item, you know, to the to the app. It must be a challenging process to go through. They're maybe on the cusp of adding a little bit too much. Are there any other maybe popular apps that come to mind for you where you think, oh, actually, they're on the cusp of doing a little bit too much and at risk of maybe alienated or overcomplicating uh, their user interface? Um, uh, you know, Instagram definitely is is probably top of my list. Is they tr- mm. they're trying to be TikTok and Instagram at the same time now, um, right. and Snapchat, right? Uh, they're just Facebook as a company. You know what they're fortunate enough to have is they have so much money that they can make so many mistakes. That's the difference right. between startups and large companies. Large companies can can afford to make mistakes. Startups don't have that much money. You know, you make a mistake, it costs you. And so Facebook right now, even if Instagram, let's say people just start using it or stop using it and they move on to something else, Facebook has enough money to go buy that next thing. And so they'll be around because of that. So, yeah, I would say, let me see, I'm just trying to think of some other examples, but uh, that one definitely, you know, always jumps out at me um, as somebody who's just trying to do too much right now. Yeah. I I think a lot of financial apps actually are trying to do too much. I think we're seeing in the FinTech world, this um, it's going through this just wonderful uh, change where we're using financial apps specifically for a thing, as opposed to banking apps, which are trying to be all things to you. Mm. Financial. So we use Venmo to transfer money to somebody, but I don't save money in Venmo. I might use another app for savings or, you know, now payroll companies are starting to offer debit cards so that you'll keep your money there. I call these Trojan horse FinTech apps. Essentially we're an app will come into our lives for a purpose and then we'll end up kind of using it as a bank. And they are banks, but people don't think of them like banks. Most common term now is neobank. And we have been creating these left and right. We just, I just love that space right now. Yeah, that's interesting. It's almost like the deconstruction of a certain space or the deconstruction of a, of a, yeah, a, a way to, in, the way you've described it in finance, it's like taking all the elements of finance and then having an individual app for each element or each purpose. Are there any other industries that come to mind like for you where you think actually that industry could really use a little bit of deconstruction? We segment out the industry a little bit and create apps for each unique purpose. Well, I think medical is the other big one. Right. Um, We're starting to see that happen. You know, you have specific apps that will help you in a specific area. And I think, um, you know, I have the ability to text my doctor any time of the day. That's 
through an app called Spruce. And I personally love that. I have, you know, I can just ask him a question about medication or anything, really. Um, and that's a, an amazing, you know, thing that would have never been possible even just a few years ago. And I think medical starting to do that. We're working on several medical projects that I think are, are have that aim to do that. And so you're going to see all kinds of new medical models, you know, just complete different financial models to uh, spring up, you know, with whether it be wellness or, you know, uh, you know, even HMOs and stuff like that. I think you're just going to see, you know, all kinds of different ways of interacting with your doctor that just wasn't possible before. Yeah, it's really interesting. I was just thinking there about I was thinking about maybe what the restrictions have been historically. And I do remember a time uh, and probably showing my age a little bit on the podcast, but you know, a time <laughs> where we would worry about how much storage we would have on our phones and being like, Oh, we have to, we have to decide which apps we're going to sacrifice to keep, you know, other apps. And uh, I think that's one thing that's changed is that generally the base storage on, you know, mobile phones now is maybe 128 gig. And I think that that is more than enough for, probably hundreds of apps so i don't think that we have that problem and so a combination of the technical increases in the space available so you don't have to make that decision plus this ability to create single function apps maybe more easily i would imagine that that means that the average person now installs more apps than maybe 10 years ago i'd assume that's the case do you happen to know anything just um, even anecdotally on that yeah, I think that's why iOS made the change to essentially archive your storage on apps. So essentially, uh-huh. you know, what happens if you haven't used an app in a while, it's kind of deleted from your phone on the hard drive. And then, you know, it's kind of stored in the cloud and then you can go back and reinstall it. I had to, I think I did that this morning, to be honest, on one um, that I hadn't used in a while. Um, oh yeah, yeah, my my blood pressure app. Oh, I take my blood yeah. pressure daily, and it has. Uh, I had that app on there, and I hadn't used it in a while. So, um, but it, but it was still storing all the data every day as I was using the cuff. Mm. So it was interesting. So I think Apple has really made an effort to try to deal with you having so many apps, and you know, even uh, addressing the storage issue. And uh, I guess another reason uh, that comes to mind for me with respect to the importance of simplifying your app's proposition is Mm -hmm. the point that you discussed about raising finance. Because when you're sitting in those meetings, and I assume you support or consult in terms of pitching for investment, you -hmm. need to make, there is, I guess the market is so saturated with app ideas that you need to make yours stand out and make the solution or the purpose clear. So it kind of lends itself as another reason to really make sure that the proposition is really tight for the apps that you're producing. Do you support and help businesses in terms of that aspect of pitching for investment? Yeah, I'm generally in about 70 to 80% of the pitch meetings. You know, that's a big part of what I do. Uh, people say, oh, why do you offer that service? I'm surprised that other development companies don't because, <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, why wouldn't I want you to raise millions of dollars and hopefully <laughs> spend that with me? You know, yeah. it's a selfish thing I'm doing. I mean, yeah, I'm also trying to get them to be successful, not to be so cynical, but 
but yeah, we raised 9.5 million last year in 2021. Right now we have one investment. Uh, I can't specifically talk about, but it's, uh, there's about a $40 million raise on just one project right now, uh, possibly in, in the works. So yeah, there's, you know, we see and, and are part of a lot of those. And, um, so yeah, you know, people misunderstand investors. Investors want to invest. They mm-hmm. are dying and looking for the right projects. What a lot of founders misunderstand is that they overestimate how good their project is translating or communicated to people. And I think that they, they just overestimate how good it is. You know, they, their standards aren't high enough for what, you know, either the graphics or the user interface or, or for their strategy is not clear enough or, you know, their solutions not clear enough that they just don't work hard enough at clarity and, Mm. You know, people think, oh, simple's easy. Simple's very hard, very difficult, you know. And so they have to, we work really, really hard to make things simple. People look at it and they think, oh, that means must be cheap and easy. I don't know. It takes more effort, a lot more time. I'm a big fan of good copywriting and sometimes the best copywriting. You actually mentioned it earlier in that um, you try to take a long paragraph of text that describes maybe an app's purpose and mm-hmm. consolidate it down to a few words to describe it. And uh, that's a perfect example of just the craft of copywriting, for example, and how you you want to communicate a vision in the fewest words possible. And really the principles that you're discussing there are, are applicable to pitching as well and and simplification of the, the app. I'm interested to know, when you're in those meetings, are there any trends that you've seen over the years, trends that you know light up investors' minds those techniques or those things that you do or the things that you need to prepare for what comes to mind? Yeah. uh, You know, one thing I would say is uh, people really believe when I say people, I mean, founders really believe that they need to have a lot of incredible details for an investor. And I I just find that to not be true at all. I, I think they understand and appreciate the broad strokes of the vision and, and, you know, it has to have, it has to be clear, but you know, their decks are too long or they have way too many words. And I love Guy Kawasaki's principle of 10, 20, 30, you know, 10 slides, 20 minutes and nothing smaller than 30 point font. I strive in keynotes to have three words or less on one screen. If you look at Steve jobs, he was probably one of the greatest keynote people of all time. He generally had, three words or less on his and and that's because it takes incredible clarity to do something like that and i think people are trying to get too much on a on a slide when they're creating decks and you know they're trying to get too many things and it's just because they feel like they their insecurity makes them try to say a lot of things Mm -hmm. and that's the problem if i saw if i see anything with founders is they're just always struggling with insecurity and so it comes out in everything that they do, trying to build too many features, trying to have too many slides. That's all a sign of insecurity. It's like some guy in a bar who's talking up a girl and he's just talking about himself the whole time. That doesn't work. That's, that's just a sign of his insecurity. And I think the same thing's true in early founders is they're just trying to say too much, trying to do too much because they think that's going to compensate 
for their lack of experience that they're feeling. And it's just not true. On the cost side of things, when founders come in to speak to you about the consultancy, the build, the promotion of an app, do they generally have realistic expectations about the cost of things? Or do you find that actually people think that you mentioned somewhere as you were talking there that perhaps something is interpreted as cheap because it's simple. So do you face that problem very often? Yeah, all the time. Um, Even even experienced founders uh, underestimate the amount of costs that's going to be involved in in building a a truly world-changing product. You know, and I, I tell everybody the, the best way I do it, I say, if you're going to figure out the value of your home, you're going to go look at comps, right? You're going to go look at other homes in your area to try to understand what your home is worth. I say, do the same thing. If you're going to try to compare your company against a competitor, go look at a successful competitor in that space and go on crunchbase.com and go review their raises of money. And I think that you'll be surprised if you aren't thinking in those terms, you're not truly having, you know, proper expectations of of what the cost is going to be. Um, And I just, you know, people don't understand why do I have to raise millions of dollars, you know, in this process, you know, they, they're, they're trying to build something for a hundred thousand dollars and they want to be monetized and, you know, three months. It's just not realistic in most cases. What are some of the features or functionality that tends to drive up the cost when building apps? Yeah, I I just think the amount of developers and the amount of team members is the most important thing. You know, we the way we build apps is we don't try to find somebody who has a bunch of different skills. We try to find somebody who's really, really good at one thing whether it's being a developer, a front-end developer, a back-end developer, a designer, a graphic artist. You know, it takes nine to 10 people to build an app with different skills. And people often will go and try to hire a single person that's going to have all of those skills. And I can just tell you the quality is far different. Um, And I think that's probably the biggest part is they don't understand why they need 10 people to build something at high quality. It's just that's the reality. It takes that many people. If you're talking about marketing and all this other aspects, it just, it's a lot of people. And I think that's the big one. Uh, you know, thankfully, you know, early startups don't have big server costs, thankfully. And, you know, knock on wood, the cloud's been wonderful <laughs> you know, with that. So, uh, you know, Amazon's, uh, you know, server packages when you first get started are pretty reasonable. So, um, now down the road, you're gonna have real costs, you know, but, um, yeah, it's, it's crazy what we can accomplish in three, four months now versus what would have taken, you know, forever before and cost a ton of money up front. Um, I'm so interested in that first three or four months. So talking that story through, I've got a good, uh, good understanding of your experience, your role in the company, you know, what you look for and maybe what makes the foundations of a good app. And even there, a little bit there about some financial advice and how you support mm-hmm. uh, people in a pitch stage. But yeah, then then comes the moment that the client signs on the dotted line and they start to work with you and you've, you're kind of building an app. And those three or four months, you've referenced it a few times. So it sounds like they're really crucial and maybe 
busy but fun, exciting months. What are you doing in those first three to four months? What are you looking for as well? Yeah, so I'll tell you, day one's a, a pretty amazing day. And I generally <laughs> have a discussion with them after day one just to kind of understand how they feel because they've gone through a real immersive experience because we spend mm. about five to six hours with you on the first day. And we normally have people fly out to California and be in the room only because I think it's crucial for that kind of collaboration for that long of a period of time to be in the same room and really build the team up. And so we can trust each other in this process. Mm. And so that's day one. And then the 30 days that follow is around design and prototyping. Um, and, you know, so we really dig in um, and try to have real clarity about what we're building. And uh, there's generally about five people involved in that process of that first 30 days. And then um, after that 30 days, we're kind of ready for going next steps with development and involving the, the team for actually programming the app. And so that's the three months to follow. If we build a small enough product, I, I think we should be being alpha testing in three months after that. Talk me through that alpha testing stage. What does that mean in, in your world? And in particular, I'm looking at, at that stage, you must be looking for early signs of some kind of traction, maybe yeah. existing customers from from one place signing up for the app or maybe new customers signing up for the first time? What are you looking for? So our alpha testing is a real closed testing uh, process right. of about 10 users. So it's pretty small. Right, right. And we try to get 10 users to give us feedback and give us some real acceptance. And we'll go in, in that process as long as we can until we feel like those 10 users are pretty happy. And then we'll move to a, a beta where we open it up to about 100 people. And we, we have this saying around the office, if we can't make 100 people happy, we certainly can't make a million. Um, <laughs> people, people are always trying to make a million people happy right out of the gate. I'm like, you, you know, that's too many people. <laughs> you need to get 100 people, you know, raving fans. And then we can talk about releasing it to the world. It's real protective thing, essentially. You're trying to protect the product and its reputation by only showing it to a certain amount of people so that you can get it right before you take it out to the world. And so those are the two big stages for alpha and, and beta. We're, we started in alpha yesterday on our project. So going through that and trying to get that feedback. Yeah, the early traction is really just like, did people find it easy to use? Did it truly solve the thing that they were trying to do with it? That's the most important thing. So does that mean that you seek a lot of anecdotal feedback as opposed to kind of hard data and metrics? Uh, I'm big in, in metrics once we have a larger number of people. Really hard when you're doing alpha testing with 10 people to get a lot of yeah. you know, real metrics there because uh, you don't have the benefit of the law of large numbers, right? So you need... But once we get into a beta and we, we go past beta to production, it's all data at that point. And any investor who's a true investor, true VC, that's all they care about is data at that point. Mm. Um, we don't care what people you know, internally are saying about it. Um, one of the most successful apps I ever did, I hate it personally. 
<laughs> yeah. I really want to ask what it is. Are you able to reveal what it is or not? <laughs> no, I, I don't think they would like it since I own 25% of that company. To <laughs> right, right. Say I hate that app. But I would say it's wildly successful. It's worth probably 30 to $40 million, and I still own 25% of it. So, um, <laughs> But I still hate it. I looked at it yesterday, and I was just like, God, I don't know why so many people use this app. Yeah. <laughs> that's interesting. That's, one thing, that, one thing that's really interesting about, about what you just said there is the – the it's actually patience is the word that comes to mind. Is that something you experience with, with founders and even within your team? Because it sounds like if you've got this idea for maybe even working with a startup or a disruptor, um, and you've got this great idea on your hands and you're building it, you probably want to release it to the world. But then to go through that alpha testing process requires patience and discipline. And one of the big mistakes that I see, I'm interested in technology and software, is that particularly when you go on something like Product Hunt, there are lots of products which are very early stage that maybe are released too early. Then the user experience impacts the reputation. They're, they're kind of dead forever from there. So it, how important is patience as part of that process in that first couple months? Yeah, it's everything. Um, I find that, like I said, the, the managing expectations is one of the biggest parts of my job because... And I always feel like I have to have told them several times before we get there or they won't believe me. And so one of the illustrations I use is that starting a company, you know, we call it launch for a reason. It's very much like a rocket ship. It takes an insane amount of effort to move it one inch in the beginning. You know, that's what it is when you're launching a rocket, right? Um, It takes a lot and it takes a while to see it really move. And so and that effort is often people and money in the beginning and they struggle because they're spending, you know, the first hundred thousand users is extremely expensive to get in most cases. And, and you'll feel like they're not, it's not moving. And I've seen people quit on projects that I thought were going to be wildly successful recently can't talk about the name, but I really thought this thing had legs and the people had spent a lot of money and they just didn't have the patience to let it keep going. I even offered to continue funding it and they didn't do it. I I just, it's tragic. You mentioned launch there as you were talking. Sorry, there's a slight delay there. I didn't mean to speak over you then. No, Um, no, no, that's fine. Uh, uh, You mentioned launch, and so I really want to get into launch day, and I appreciate that a lot goes into launch day, so you can't speak through it all. But Mm -hmm. for anyone listening that's perhaps, you know, maybe about to launch an app in the next six months or so, or thinking about building their own app, what are some of the essentials that you need to have ready for launch day? Well, I, I think it starts even way before that in, in pre-launch, um, yeah. having a strong pre-launch strategy. So let's just say, for example, you're launching a social media app, which um, a lot of people want to do, but they, they underestimate often what they're tackling is something that starts pre-marketing starts six months. Pre-marketing can start before development, you know, and should, because what you have to do for a social media app or even worse, a dating app might get that one a lot, you know, (laughs) and what people are underestimating is those apps take a lot of people in them all at once for them to work. 
So, you know, it's like trying to play baseball by yourself. You, you need other team members f- to play the game. And in social media and dating, you need lots of people in that app for the app to work. So how do you do that? How do you get them all on all at once? Well, pre-launch marketing is the way to do it. You've got to get a lot of people looking forward to the day of launch so that you don't have a, you know, a hundred people you have thousands in one day uh, because you're going to need them and they need to be in a smaller geographical area. In most cases, you know, I can't date five States over. Right. Um, And so that doesn't work in most cases. So you're, you're always trying to get a lot of people all at once. And and the only way to do that is to have a really strong pre-launch strategy. You know, Bumble was famous for how they did it. You know, they, they threw parties and did all kinds of things before the app even launched. And so everybody got on the day it started. I was going to ask you, are there any examples that come to mind of companies that have had really good pre-launch strategies? It could be something that you've built or just other companies that you've seen. Well, I would say Instagram was famous. The, the reason why they jumped, you know, people say, oh, they grew so fast, but they were growing before they even launched. You know, uh-huh. they had a massive list of people that were interested in the app long before they released it. And, and they were pitching a very simple thing. They said, Hey, listen, you want to filter your photos and make them look better when Uh you post them on Facebook. And they did a good job of getting a lot of people interested in that. And so when they went live, they grew really fast. And I think that's, you know, in most cases, that's how you market an app. Um, you need to be doing that long before building that beta list. And I can't remember when, and speaking about Instagram, actually, this ties in nicely. I think it was on your website somewhere I was reading, but I know that you're interested in influencer marketing as well. And I'm just yeah. interested to know if you've seen any good examples, because I don't naturally associate the two. When I think of influencer marketing, I think out in the wild in terms of what I see on a day-to-day. I see business-to-consumer products, particularly in things like fitness, well-being, lifestyle-related products. I don't necessarily think of um, apps or app promotion. So are there any examples you've got of influencers uh, utilizing influencers to help promote apps? Good examples of that that you've seen? Yeah, I would love to say that this was all my idea. It wasn't. Um, but we had an instance where we were spending in a banking app, we were spending about $29 to $30 for user acquisition. And, and that's for a full bank connection. They had to get on. They had to actually connect their current bank to our bank. And $29 is not bad considering Bank of America was, is spending $150. That was still pretty good. But we were utilizing mm-hmm. Facebook and Instagram ads to do that. And, but it was expensive. We didn't have a lot of budget. And so we were trying to manage costs associated with that. And so we went out and we decided to uh, approach some influencers. And believe it or not, we are still utilizing that strategy today on that same app years later. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, it's been wildly successful. I think. Last numbers I saw, we had user acquisition costs down to like three to five dollars, which is good for mm. a banking app. That's really, really difficult to get those kinds of numbers. And it was just through, you know, essentially a meme account or something 
you know, like that saying, Hey, you know, try this app. And people did. It was pretty crazy. We, we could get in one post 500 downloads, you know, just from one post on a regular basis. And it, and it, and, and it hasn't really diminished. It's still working. So yeah, we, we are big fans of using influencers for startups because I think you spend a lot less paying an influencer than you do directly to Facebook and Instagram. And to close out the episode today, I'm just interested to know whether it's things that you've built or items that get requested of you to build. What do you see on a day-to-day basis, the features that keep people coming back? Um, We call them, sometimes we call them sticky features. Yeah, they're essentially, you know, anything that truly gives somebody joy or they give somebody you know so we we often if you get into habit formation you'd say a dopamine hit right yeah like they really um get a reward from it you know and if you're really trying to manipulate behavior and i hate to get if you're really getting into app development you're getting into habit formation and Mm. behavior manipulation uh, essentially and the best of the best that's what they're doing and so you're trying to give somebody something that makes them feel good or something like that. So they'll come back. And I think that's why social media is so addicting. You know, that people either, either they're, they're getting this thing by voyeurism by watching people and they get joy out of that, or they get it out of people admonishing them and making them feel better about themselves because maybe they're dealing with, you know, insecurities and things like that. And so it's uh, it's pretty addictive stuff. Um, and we try not to get too far into that because I think it does get pretty dark. Um, mm. But I think, you know, finding features that actually make people feel good is is key because I, I do mm. feel the responsibility of our mm. industry not being detrimental to people. Right. So and that, yeah. that's sometimes why we turn down projects. We feel like, you know, we, we want to be on the good side of this thing. Um and so I would say financial is, is a great way. I've seen this um, current culture of young people more investment minded than any culture I think we've ever seen because, mm-hmm. and it's because of apps, apps like Acorn, which by the way is a locally built app here in Irvine. Right. And um, those apps by allowing, you know, whether it be micro investments or just truly managing their money better, I think we're seeing a real movement in the financial sector for far more responsible behavior in young people that was just not true before. And I think apps are responsible for that. If people want to learn more about this and go to the people that build the most successful app in the world, tell them where to find you in Naked Development. Yeah, just go to nakeddev.com and you can sign up to have a discussion with me. Thanks so much again for your time. And this has been the Internet Marketing Podcast. Take care, John. Thank you, Scott. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. 
and he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.